I hope you will read along with us as we go through these books of the Bible together and refresh your mind and uh, uh, prepare your heart for uh, a new glimpse of truth. I, I am discovering that the Old Testament uh, is designed particularly of God to make the great truths of the New Testament come alive for us. And if there's anything that we need, it's that in our Christian experience, isn't it? So many of these truths are simply academic knowledge, as far as we're concerned. But they come alive when we see them interpreted in the dramatic presentations of the Old Testament. Now, this is true, especially in the first five books of Moses, or even the first six books of the Old Testament. For in these books... God is tracing through the pattern of his workings. If you remember our outline in our panoramic view of Scripture, the first six books of the, of the Bible, uh, Genesis through Joshua, trace for us God's pattern of working in human lives. And his pattern is going to be exactly the same in your life as it was in uh, the life of Adam and Abraham and Noah and Moses and David and all the others. And it will follow the pattern that is developed for us in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And, uh, and in those books, we will we'll see how God moves in our lives. Now, it's, it's necessary, therefore, when we're studying in these books, to relate them, at least briefly, to the other books. Genesis, we saw, was the book of the, uh, of the great... Revelation of the need of man's heart. Genesis is all about man. Man's creation, man's beginnings, man's dominion, man's fall, the flood caused by man's sin, the new world uh, that followed the flood, and uh, man's slow journey through time, groping after God, the call of Abraham, and uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, those four men who followed, who set forth God's, uh, the need of men for justification, for sonship, you remember, for uh, glorification, and uh, for sanctification. And all of Genesis is about man. And most significantly, it ends with the words, a coffin in Egypt. That is... All that you can say about man, when you've said everything there is to say, is that he lives in the realm of death. We talked about that this morning. Now, Exodus is all about God. Exodus is God's answer to man's need, God's supply for man's sin. And uh, the whole book is about God, and it begins immediately with God's activity. And throughout the whole course of the book, you see God mightily at work. And the book is a picture, therefore, of redemption, of God's activity to redeem man in his need, in his sin, in his degradation and misery. And uh, as such, it's a beautiful picture and contains tremendously instructive lessons to us of what redemption is, what God is doing in our lives, what he has done with us, and what he intends to do with us, and the steps that he will be taking. Now, it isn't complete. You will never get the full story of redemption in Exodus. You must move on into Leviticus. 
and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you never get the full picture till you come into the book of Joshua, where you find Israel brought into the land. And in that place, in triumph and victory, living uh, in, in victory over their enemies, and thus a picture of the triumphant, victorious Christian experience. Now, Israel is a picture then of the people of God, of the church of God, and of you as a child of God. And these books are marvelously designed. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, they were actual historical occurrences which occurred in such a way under the overhand, uh, over-ruling uh, government of God that they acted out for us great truths. And that's why Paul says in writing to the Corinthians, as we read earlier this evening, these things happened as examples, as types unto us. And they're written for our instruction. And therefore, it, it is well to, to give much heed to these. Now, the book of Exodus opens with the story of the birth of a baby, a most remarkable baby and a most remarkable birth. God's finger is in evidence right at the very beginning of this book. For this is the story of a baby who was born under sentence of death, whose life was marvelously preserved by the intervening hand of God, with that little delicate twist of humor that I think is, is wonderful. I hope none of you missed it. How God the Holy Spirit moved uh, so that despite the law of Pharaoh, that all the babies of Egypt, the male babies, should be put to death, Moses is born, and then in an ironic twist, Pharaoh hires Moses' mother to take care of the baby. And I, I'm sure that was one of those intentionally uh, delightful expressions of the humor of God. If you don't haven't yet discovered that God has a sense of humor, you don't know him very well. There are humorous glimpses all through the Old and the New Testaments, and I sometimes can't read my Bible without just breaking out into a great gales of laughter over some of the clever ways God uh, turns the tables on someone and interjects these ironic twists, these, these beautifully humorous incidents into the story. Now, such is the case with Moses. Moses was born under the, under the sentence of death. And the interesting thing is that when God wants to do something, he almost invariably starts with a baby. We don't. We, we think babies are not very important. Back in 1809, the whole world was anxiously awaiting the news of the battles of Napoleon. At that time, he was threatening to be the dictator of the entire world. He was the Hitler of his day, if you like, or the Khrushchev, perhaps. Anyway, he held the whole world in fear of the, of the tyrannical uh, desires, the egomaniacal impulses of this man, Napoleon. And every, all the world was, was uh, waiting anxiously to hear the outcomes of his battles in 1809. But that same year, there were babies being born in houses of families around the world. And what babies? There was uh, Tennyson in England and Charles Darwin and uh, 
Gladstone, who later was to become Prime Minister of Great Britain, over here in this country, in Kentucky, in a log cabin, was born Abraham Lincoln, Oliver Wendell Holmes, other men who, when they came to manhood, were giants who shook the world and changed the world. And all I'm saying is that when God wants to change history, he doesn't start with a battle. He starts with a baby. And this is the way the whole world's history was changed as we begin this book of Exodus. God began with a baby. And as Moses grew up, he was raised in all the court of Pharaoh. He knew all the learning of the Egyptians, we're told. He was trained in the best universities of the greatest empire of the world of that day. He was the foster son of the king himself. And every uh, privilege was his. Every advantage was his. But when he came to age, as you know, God spoke to him. And uh, he realized that he was intended to be the deliverer of Israel. And he went out trying to do his job. He thought. And he ended up murdering a man the very same day and had to flee out into the wilderness. And as you trace the story through, you know how Moses left uh, the land of Egypt and for 40 years herded sheep in the wilderness where God dealt with him and taught him. And then in the remarkable vision of the, of, of the burning bush, God called him back to the task which he had originally given to him but for which he was completely unprepared until he'd learned that God himself was all that it takes to do anything in his name. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me come back a bit to the structure of the book, first of all. You can remember the story of the book of Exodus if you remember four things, just four things. The whole book centers around four great events. The first one is the Passover. And everything from uh, Exodus 1, clear through Exodus uh, 13, centers around this, uh, Exodus 13 and 14, centers around the Passover. It all leads up to it and finds its climax in that great event. Then the second event is the, uh, is the crossing of the Red Sea. And this is described for us in verse four, in, in chapter 14. The Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea. We'll come back to these in a minute. The third great event is the giving of the law at Sinai. And the fourth is the construction of the tabernacle in the midst of the tent of, of the camp of Israel. Now, those four things sum up the book of Exodus. And the first two relate very closely to each other, as do the second two. The Passover and the Red Sea are but two aspects of one great thing. The deliverance of God's people from the bondage of Egypt. And they portray in the Christian experience one great thing. What we call conversion or regeneration. The deliverance of an individual from the bondage of sin from the bondage of the world and its ways. Egypt is always a picture of the world in Scripture. And if you want to know what God did with you when you became a Christian, you study the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. 
I will come back to those in a moment. The other two events also tie together. The giving of the law and the construction of the tabernacle are absolutely inseparable. Remember that the pattern of the tabernacle was given to Moses when he was on the mount with God. At the same time, the law was given. And we must understand that these two things are are inextricably linked together in the scriptures. The law and the tabernacle. Now we'll see why in in a few moments. Now, let's come back to, uh, to the Passover. You know the story, and we'll just... I won't retrace it for you because I think it's familiar to all of you of how God called Moses, challenged him, sent him back down to Egypt. At first he was reluctant to go. And there are wonderful lessons for us in all of these. I can't stay with the details, but uh, some of them are most instructive. For instance, when God said to Moses, Moses, I want you to go down and deliver my people. Moses said to God, oh, Lord, I can't do that. I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. I'm not able to talk. I can't stand before Pharaoh. And uh, God God didn't say anything about that to Moses. He wasn't angry about that. Because, of course, that was merely Moses' human inadequacy displaying itself. And there's nothing wrong with that. We were made to be that way. God never uh, holds us uh, guilty for feeling inadequate when he asks us to do something. But then God said to Moses, I know that you you can't talk, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll be a tongue for you. I will speak through you. You go down to Moses, and I will be your tongue, and I will speak through you. And Moses said, well, Lord, I think you better get somebody else. And it says the the anger of God waxed hot against Moses. Because, you see, the first time Moses was saying, Lord, I can't do this. I'm just a man. And God said, yes, I know. I made you that way. But I'll do it through you. And then when Moses the second time said, well, Lord, you better get someone else. What he was saying was, Lord, I can't do this, and I don't think you can do it either. Through me. And... When Moses challenged God like that, the anger of God waxed hot against him. Now, that's a good point to remember whenever God challenges you to do something. He never is concerned when you, uh, your initial reaction is to draw back. But after he's reminded you that he's with you to do this thing in you and through you, and then you draw back, then you have insulted God because you've said, Lord... I don't think you can do it either. Now, Moses went on. He went down to Egypt, as you know, taking the rod of God with him. And he comes into conflict with Pharaoh. Nothing is more dramatic in all the Old Testament than this tremendous conflict of wills between Pharaoh and Moses, the representative of Satan and the representative of God. And uh, how God had to move in mighty power against this man. And it's almost incredible, as we read the story through, how God would uh, move with uh, some tremendous plague throughout the land of Egypt, and then we'd read, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let the people go. And again and again this took place. There were nine plagues in all, 
And Dr. Graham Scroggie points out that every one of those plagues was directed against one of the gods of Egypt. So that God was ruling in judgment over the gods of Egypt by these terrible plagues that gripped the land of Egypt. If you're interested in the scientific aspects of this, I would uh, recommend to you that you read the most fascinating book by the Russian scientist Emanuel Velikovsky, Worlds in Collision. And uh, he has some very interesting theories as to why these plagues and these tremendous events of the Moses Day occurred. Uh, I'm not saying that everything in the book is true, but it's a most fascinating and interesting approach to the story. Then as uh, we move on, God has called the people together and has sent Moses to them. And at last, Pharaoh's heart is... Uh, is uh, Overcome, his will is overcome by the power of God, the display of the power of God. And at last he consents, after the death of his firstborn, to let Israel go. Now, it's very important to notice that when Moses went down to Egypt, the people of Israel were not a nation. They were a separate people, but they were in no sense a nation. They became a nation when they passed through the Red Sea. That's the meaning of those words that were read from Second, from First Corinthians tonight. They were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were made a body in the sea. They were a disorganized mob before. They came out a unit, a unit in Christ when they passed through the Red Sea. And this is a beautiful reflection of the truth that every Christian discovers that before he becomes a Christian, he's simply an individual struggling to make his way through life. But when he has gone through the experience equal to the Passover, he has seen the blood of a lamb nailed to a cross for him, sprinkled on a cross for him. And he's rested in that fact as the people of Egypt, uh, of Israel rested in the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts of their house on the night of the Passover. And until he has passed through a Red Sea experience, when he has broken, burned his bridges behind him, so to speak, and has moved forward onto a Christian stand, and has declared himself for God, passed through the waters of the sea, until that happens, that both the Passover and the Red Sea, he will never fully understand that he has become part of a body, the body of Christ. And he's joined together in a living unit with all other Christians. And this is pictured for us in this book of Exodus. Now the Passover, you well know, is a picture of the, of the cross of Christ. What a beautiful story it is. How the angel of death passed through the land and all the firstborn were slain. But those Israelites who by faith, simply by faith, took the blood of a lamb and sprinkled it over the doorposts and on the lintels of the house were perfectly safe as they rested there within the house. And this pictures for us that uh, marvelous act by which, by a simple act of faith, we rest on the fact that, that Jesus Christ dying for us has settled our, our guilt before God. The angel of death will no longer pass over us. The angel of judgment 
will never pass over us because we're resting on the blood of the Lamb of God. Wonderful picture. But that's not the whole story. Remember that the Passover is never of value until the Red Sea experience is linked with it. And the Red Sea followed immediately in this book after the Passover. They left the Passover, they left uh, Egypt, went out into the wilderness, came to the shores of a sea. They were still in Egypt when they got to the edge of the sea. And it looked the case looked hopeless to them. It looked as though there they would have to lose all that they had gained. And the people began to cry out to Moses and asked him why he had brought them here to die in the wilderness. And Moses' answer is a wonderful answer. He says, stand still, and you shall see the salvation of the Lord. It was a cry of faith. But God's word comes immediately, he says, go forward. Don't stand still. This is not the time for that. Go forward. Well, they said, where? Here's the water in front of us. Where are we going? Here's the Egyptians behind us. Where can we go? And Moses said, never mind. God says, go forward. Now go forward. And the Lord had told him, of course, to stretch out his rod over the sea. And when he did, the waters rolled back and they passed through, as you know the story, safe on the other side. And the Egyptians following them were caught in the rush of the waves as they came back in and were drowned in the sea. Now, what does the Red Sea typify in your life? Well, it typifies your break with the world. You see, Egypt is on the other side. Once they got through the Red Sea, they were, they were in the wilderness, true, but they were out of Egypt. And there was a, a river of death that had rolled between them. Exactly the same river of death that has rolled between you and the world when you have claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and moved out. Now notice something about this. When they were in the, uh, going through the Passover, they rested in their houses. They didn't do a thing. They simply sat there. They were depending on the work of another. When they came to the Red Sea, though it was God's power and God's might that rolled the waters back and made it possible for them to go through, there was activity demanded of them. Their wills were, were challenged. They were asked to move through. And here is exactly the reason why many professions of Christian faith never materialize into anything. For there are people who are willing to sit under the Passover blood, who are willing to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, in other words, but they are never willing to walk through the waters of the Red Sea. They never take that step which burns their bridges, cuts them off from the world. In their mind and thinking, they are still back in Egypt. They will not move forward through the Red Sea. And until that happens, they're still under the bondage and under the control of Egypt. It was only as Israel came through the sea that they began to sing. You'll notice in verse in chapter 15 that the first thing they did when they got through on the other side was to break in the song. No songs in Egypt. That is a place of bondage and of heartache and of misery and of unremitting toil and danger. But when they come into the wilderness and onto the shores, uh, the other far shore of the Red Sea, they break into song. And uh, 
this, I see this pattern worked out so frequently in life today. A young man came to me not long ago. He was having a struggle with, with drinking. And he evidently had come to a crisis in his life when he wanted to be set free. And somehow he realized that there was strength in Christ to set him free. And he came to me and we talked together and he bowed his head at last and received the Lord. But about three weeks later, I got a phone call from him and he was back in the same old mess again. Exactly the same. And I called him over and we sat down again together and I said, What happened to you when you went home three weeks ago after you said you'd received the Lord? What did you do? Did you do anything about this? And he said, uh, No, I didn't. He said, I just went home. And I said, Well, what were you expecting to happen? Well, he said, I didn't know. I just, I just went home and I, I guess I just forgot about it. I said, If you had made a decision today to enter into business, in some kind of a business relationship, and you had decided that you wanted to get into a certain job, and there were necessary steps to take to do so, when you re made that decision, would you then go home and forget about the whole thing? Oh, no, he said, I, I, I'd start moving in that direction. I said, well, do you think that you can convince me that you have really made a decision for Jesus Christ that your life is going to be under his control if when you've made it you go home and you just sit down and you fold your arms and forget about it? And he said, no, I, I guess not. I said, you see, decision is one thing. Decision brings the power of God to bear on our lives to set us free from the, the guilt of the past. And we can rejoice in that. God's word is true. But there is also that call to pass through the Red Sea, that call to move forward and cut off your, your ties with the world and its ways, and to deliberately take steps that will allow the, the, the river of God's judgment to flow between you and the ways of the world. And when you take that step, you move out into the place where God dwells with you. Because as you see here in Exodus, if you're looking with me in uh, chapter 15, you'll see that God never touches his people or never comes among them until they've passed through the Red Sea. When they've passed through the Red Sea, then God begins to dwell among them. Annie Johnson Flint has a beautiful poem called, Have You Come to the Red Sea Place in Your Life? Where in spite of all that you do, there's no way out, and there's no way back. The only way out is through. Have you come to that place? Well, that's where many Christians need to come, because, or never, many people need to come, because until then, they've never really known the, the dwelling of God in their life. Now, I must hasten on through. Uh, in verse 22 of chapter 15, you have a most interesting picture. You have the story of the waters of Marah, the bitterness, the place of bitterness. And this immediately follows the crossing of the Red Sea. And in order to cure these waters, Moses took a tree, cut down a tree that the Lord showed him, and threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And if you're following through the typical picture of this story, you'll see that this comes in right, just the right place. You see, 
What it's telling us is that the cross, the great tree upon which the Lord Jesus hung, is God's answer to bitterness in life. And when we've passed through the Passover, trusting in his blood, and the Red Sea, we have cut ourselves away from the things of the world. We discover then that the cross is forever the answer to all the bitterness that sin may have brought into our life in the days of the past. God's answer to bitterness in any person's experience is, is this experience of the cross. Cutting away all the frustrations and all the unhappiness of the past and sweetening the waters of our life. Immediately following that, they come into the place of the wilderness and the manna falls. Here's God's fatherly care beginning. Didn't you discover that when you became a Christian? The minute you became a Christian and you, you meant it so that you would, you'd cut off your life, your former life, You'd pass through the Red Sea. Didn't you immediately discover God's fatherly care began? And he watched over you, and he fed you, and he bore you on eagles' wings, as he says here to these Israelites. But mixed with this is the murmuring of the people, and there's so much of that in our life, isn't there? And then comes the battle in chapter 17, the first battle with the flesh. And here's a, always a startling thing to Christians after they've gone through the glory of the Passover and the Red Sea and the mighty deliverance of God in their life and the sense of his fatherly love and care and the manna that comes in the fellowship with Christ in the new life, in the new walk, to discover that they still got a battle with the old flesh. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? But here it is in chapter 17, Amalek comes and fights with Israel. And God declares unending war with Amalek. He'll never make peace with it. And so on you come through the typical teaching of this book, through chapter 18, and at last we come to Sinai. Now, let me hastily bring these two together, and the rest of the book will not take nearly as much time on. In Sinai, we have, of course, the giving of the law. And what is the law? It's simply a picture of God, that's all. It's the character of God. The holiness of God. Let me put it another way. The unchangeability of God. The unrelenting character of God. This is why the law and the giving of the law is a time of terror. Because there's nothing more terrible to us human beings than to face squarely up to the fact that God is absolutely unchangeable. That nothing will change him. This means wonderful things to us when we think of his love and his care and his grace. But it means frightening things to us when we think of his anger and his wrath and his holiness. This means that God can never be talked out of anything. God can never be bought off. He's not interested in 5% or anything like that. We cannot get him to lower his standards in any degree. The law, you see, was the absolute, uh, irrevocable standard of God's character. Just as we discover as we come into the experience of the Lordship of Christ, that he is absolutely unchangeable. He will never lower his demands in our life. Now, the law by itself 
therefore, is a frightening thing, isn't it? Because God's character, God's nature is a frightening thing to us. When we really take seriously what God says to us about himself, listen, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you take that seriously? Well, most of us spend a lot of time finding ways to water it down somehow. Be perfect. Well, that's a frightening thing. How can I be perfect? And God's answer to that question is the giving of the tabernacle and the ritual and the sacrifice connected with it. That's why on the mount, the very same mount in which he gave the law, which is the revelation of his character, he also gave the tabernacle, the pattern of the tabernacle. For in the tabernacle, God dwelt among his people. I like to visualize the camp of Israel. I don't know if you have ever tried to do so as you read through this book. But you remember they were divided up, all the tribes, some on the east and some on the west, some on the north and some on the south. And they were in orderly fashion, and right in the center is the tabernacle. And over it, over it and over the whole camp is the great cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night. I've often thought the camp of Israel must look very much like the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, lying out there in the desert. It spread out in great fashion, and over it this cloud <laughs> of smog, of course, <laughs> in Los Angeles. But in Israel, it was a, 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 a cloud which betokened the presence of God. And here was the attempt of God to dwell among people. And he could only do it by a most intricate system of sacrifices and ritual and uh, uh uh, a very complicated system of, of bringing the people into his presence. If you pass through that camp of Israel, you'd come through all the tribes on whichever side you entered and find your way at last to the center of the camp where the Levites were camped. And if you went through the Levites, you'd come to at last to the tabernacle. And at first you, you could pass in through a, a great gateway into the outer court. And there were certain instruments, the brazen altar and uh, the uh, brazen laver. And then there was an inner building with a veil across the face of it, into which you dared not enter unless you were a priest. The priests alone went in there, into the holy place. And behind another veil, inside the holy place, was the holy of holies. And in there, the only piece of furniture in it was the Ark of the Covenant with the, with the uh, cherubim of mercy, with their wings touching each other over the, uh, over the ark. And into that place, we're told, only the high priest could go, and he only once a year, and under the most rigid and precise conditions. Now, what does all this teach? Simply that God is absolutely changeless and holy. And... Uh, to dwell among people, he can only do so under the most rigid condition. Now, the trouble with the tabernacle was that it not only, it, it did permit the people in a sense, representatively, to come before God, but actually they were excluded from his presence. They could never come before him, the common people. Only the high priest, and he at the fear of his life, once a year, that's all. 
And this is the trouble with these Old Testament uh, rituals. You see, the trouble with the Old Testament and the saints of the Old Testament was not the keeping of the law. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the law. The law was absolutely good. Paul says so. Sometimes we, we speak of the law as though it were wrong, but it wasn't. The law was absolutely good. It still is. The trouble was with the tabernacle and the systems of sacrifices. It wasn't complete enough. It wasn't, it wasn't real enough. It was just shadows. It was just pictures, that's all. It could never do anything, really. And that's why when we come to the book of Hebrews, this whole book is dedicated to teaching us that the law of God is still unchanged, but this approach to God is made completely different as we come through the one who is the, the anti-type of all these shadows. And in the blood of Jesus, we read in Hebrews, we have boldness, every one of us, to enter into the holiest, into the holy of holies, without any fear whatsoever. For in the blood of Jesus, and by the means of the cross, God has set aside all that separated, and has brought us nigh unto himself. And the great message of the book of Exodus is that by means of the cross, God has made it possible for a holy, unchangeable God to dwell with us. And the whole of the tabernacle is a picture of God's dwelling with his people. And the great truth that we have for us here is that God has now settled so totally the problem of sin with us, absolutely settled it, that as Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, none whatsoever, none whatsoever. We have perfect access to the Father through the Son. And God's indwelling spirit will never leave us, nor forsake us. He has taken up his tabernacle in our hearts and lives. One of the things that I am always in perpetual enmity against, and I close with this, is the teaching among Sunday school teachers, by and large, they're the ones mostly guilty of this, of teaching children that a building is the house of God. Now, the reason I don't like that is because, first of all, it's not true. There was a house, of a building, which was the house of God in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, but it was a mere shadow. The temple took its place. It, too, was a shadow. But when you come into the New Testament, you never find a building designated as the house of God. The house of God in the New Testament is a body. You are the temple of God, Paul says. Therefore, you are never out of church. And I think we have taught our children one of the most deadly errors when we teach them that a building is the house of God. Because at, when we say that, it is very difficult for them to grasp the fact that their bodies are the temples of God. And that's what... God wants us to learn that we are never out of church, that Jesus Christ himself is dwelling in our bodies, which are the temple, and they're built exactly like the tabernacle. They have a threefold structure. The outer court is this body here of flesh and bones, which you see before you, plenty of flesh. And uh, the 
The holy place is the soul, the realm of the emotions, the mind, and the will. That area in which we, in which we have free intercourse one with another as we talk and share experiences together. But deep in the center of it is the holy place, the holiest of holies, your spirit. And in that place, the spirit of God dwells. So each of us is a walking tabernacle. And this whole book of Exodus is simply to impress upon us as we read it through in the light of that great New Testament truth of the glory of living with, a, with God himself in the midst of our life and the demands that it makes upon us, the responsibilities it gives us, the privileges it incurs upon us, and the need we have for a... a a walk resting upon the, upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ as alone making this all possible for us. But when you come to Exodus, this is the book of God's dwelling with men. Now it moves on into Leviticus, and as I said, you can never stop here. Exodus isn't enough. We've got to go on into Leviticus and see what this demanding law does to us in its effort to uh, correct us and guide us in our life. And in Leviticus, we learn another great truth, which if you have not experienced yet, you will find yourself bound and hampered and fettered and continually uh, experiencing an up-and-down experience. Leviticus and Numbers will bring us out of that. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's stand together, and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Our Heavenly Father... How much we thank thee for this mighty word of truth. When we think, Lord, how it has come to us through the instrumentality of prophet and apostle, of fishermen, of uh, common ordinary men like ourselves, who wrote by thy inspiration how it has been protected and passed on to us at the cost of blood and toil and sweat and tears and death. Lord, help us to value this word to believe it, and to walk in its light, knowing that here is the word of liberty, the word of knowledge that can set us free. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.